0: This is a podcast from 3 R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through till 11 o'clock. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me this morning is Dr. Ray. Good morning, buddy. Good morning, Dr. Shane. you well? I am, thank you. Oh, that's good. And we have a special guest in the studio with us who's going to hang out for our news segment. Emily Dunstan is from Zoos Victoria, has been on the show before. Emily, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's great to have you. And we're going to talk about some stuff with you about what's going on at the zoo in just a moment. Um, we've got quite a few guests coming on today, so it's going to be a ripper of a show. But we're going to start off with some news. Dr. Ray, let's go to you first.
3: Ah, Dr. Shane, because... Uh, we have uh, Emily from Zeus Victoria here. <clears throat> I specifically picked a news story that had to do with animals.
1: Brilliant. <laughs> um, I didn't. It's okay. <laughs> That's okay. <Yeah.
3: laughs> uh, but, uh, so there were two different stories I was looking at. The one I went through just because it was shorter was um, one about spiders. Okay. Um, now, <clears throat> probably some people are familiar with the the, the problem that, that in the insect world, if you're a male spider and you're trying to mate, Sometimes it doesn't always work out well. You may successfully mate, but then you may become lunch. Yeah. Um, well, there was a there's another thing that was actually in 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 a particular <clears throat> type of spider. I hadn't heard of this before, but um, in in nursery web spiders, that it's um, prior to mating they get eating if they if their courting fails. Oh. Uh, and it's called pre sexual cannibalism. Uh, where the male not, spider- not a
1: phrase you hear.
3: No, not, not to yeah, roll yeah. off the tongue. Yeah. Uh, where, where during the courting process, uh, with aggressive females, the male spider may get eaten even before mating. So um, one thing that the male spiders do bring is they often bring a, what's called a, and I don't believe that this is the terminology for it, but a <laughs> nuptial gift. Where they, they catch a piece of food and then package it up in a little silk cocoon and then actually present it to the female in part of the courting before before mating, and there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not that really has anything to do with, does it actually affect whether or not the spiders get eaten? And and this type of nuptial gift comes into play in in, in a number of insects and some vertebrates as well, but there, there's a little bit of debate. So um, researchers from the universe, uh Aarhus University in Denmark, revisited this for particularly the nursery red spider by doing it in captivity, where they found that all the males that brought nuptial gifts didn't were not eaten beforehand uh and um 20 of the spiders uh that didn't have gifts were eaten and they also benchmarked this against whether or not the female spiders were hungry so it was in captivity so they could set it up and so even if the spider was was full and the female spider wasn't hungry if the male didn't show up without a gift it, 20% of the time it got eaten. Yeah. Which, which, yeah. I, I guess it means that the <coughs> spider probably has better dating manners than most teenage boys. But um,
1: <laughs> And girls.
3: Uh, but uh, no, it was just interesting to see that, it, yeah. that you know, that's, there's still probably still a little bit of debate because this was in controlled conditions. What does it actually mm. matter in the wild? But that, that uh, yeah, that, that type a of gift. behavioral thing. Yeah, look, mm. I mean, and this is pretty amazing. We're talking about spiders. I mean, they're smaller than huntsmen. Their brains aren't as big. The type of learn, type of behavior there, that's really complex for an invertebrate. Yeah. Mm. which which always, it, it's always amazing to remember that invertebrates have just amazing patterns and behaviors, even though they're pretty tiny. Yeah,
1: that's oh, interesting oh, stuff. Spiders. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I've I've tried very hard not to pass on my arachnophobia to my kids. Because I think it's something that's very easily culturally passed on, very Um, well learned. Yeah, and so you know, I've even, I've even gone against my instinct to kill them whenever I see them and put them outside. And anyway, it's been, it's been tough. I can imagine. I can
2: imagine. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Have you ever considered trying to hold a tarantula? They're kind of cute,
1: soft. Pass. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's no, some, no, there's no. some
2: good programs now. I know the museum runs some to get you more familiar, more comfy with different spiders.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm good with the avoidance program. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, you yeah. know <laughs> They go that way. I go this way, and everyone's happy. I think it works out pretty well for me at the moment. Yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah, I've tried to teach my my kids just not to be afraid of them. You know, not not to consider. You know, mm. in the same way that you know, as I was brought up with the film Jaws, being terrified of sharks. You know, they they've got a fascination for them and the yeah, respect, and mm. and you know, I think you you have to be careful what you pass. So yeah, very so. much so. Now, uh, speaking of crazy shit, um, <coughs> sorry, uh, <laughs> this is my, yeah, well, you know, uh, it's a Sunday morning, you know, the kids are sleeping in. Um, there's a guy, <laughs> there's a guy named, uh, TJ Campbell from the Catholic University of America in Washington who has an amazing idea. And I say that with every bit of sarcasm I can muster to look at the depth of ice on Jupiter's moon Europa. Um, because you know we we know that there's subsurface um, conditions there that would be liquid and there's this surface of ice and no one's really sure how thick it is so there's a lot of interest in working out how thick it is and there's some sort of radar telemetry and so forth you can use and if it's really thin we might be able to work it out but if it's not it gets really hard to determine if it's thick it gets really hard to determine how thick it is and so you know In a crazy uh, world, you can come up with some crazy ideas. And and what he wants to do is, in terms of uh, sending up uh, a rocket, you know, that carries a probe, in one of the booster stages, he doesn't want to jettison that booster. He wants to keep it. And then he wants to fire it like an SUV into the surface and watch the repercussions of that in terms of, you know, essentially a seismic event.
3: So to, 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 to to get this straight... An American has just proposed bombing Europa to learn something about it.
1: That is one way of seeing it, I think, yeah. And why, um why now, it? <laughs> it? always has to be the American, yeah. too. Yeah, so, it's, look, it's interesting, um, because NASA, of course, have come out and said, well, you know what, <coughs> we tend not to fire shit at other worlds <laughs> if it's not properly sterilized. <laughs> and so, although he has come out with this amazing plan, and, you know, I mean, I, my question is why not use a real SUV? Yeah, I mean, yeah. why use the booster, you know, take an SUV with you and use that. But, um, anyway, NASA have basically come out and said, of course, that, um, you know, the idea of sterilizing something of that type is very difficult because if you think of where that part of the rocket is, it's exposed. So it's not going to be sterile when it hits there. And the last thing NASA wants to be doing is looking for life in 20 years time in Europa and realizing that, oh, hey, <laughs> something has been transported there by an SUV sized <laughs> hunk of junk, um, that's, um, some fool decided to shoot at the, at the moon. So anyway, that's, yeah. uh, now, uh, the other quick thing I wanted to mention was, um, Bron from Marinara was very excited. She saw me in the kitchen this morning and gave me a piece of paper and said that, um, you know, there's this weed killer, glyphosate, which oh, is yeah. a bit controversial at the moment. So in Europe, apparently 140 parliamentarians decided to, um, submit to urine sample testing. So it's led by the sort of the green sort of parties, um, to check how many of them had this detectable in their systems wow. because, um, the sort of, the, the way in which it's allowed to be used that's coming up for a renewal and they, they want to sort of push the idea that maybe Maybe you know, given there's some concern over the links to cancer with it or potential links, mm. uh, maybe they should relook at this. So it's getting a lot of airplay, but it's very funny and, and of course, a lot of politicians I think are being handed a vial and said, you know, will you please do it too? And some of them, of course, are abstaining, which I think is poor form. Yeah. Um, doesn't wouldn't you want to know? I'd want to know. I'd want to know. Have I got this stuff in my, in my urine, that means it's, it's like in my testing. in the food
3: chain. You're not testing for other controlled substances.
1: that parliamentarians well, <laughs> might be having ah <laughs> the opportunities, Ray. Yeah. Uh, I do <laughs> I, I got to be honest. I think a few a few uncontrolled substances in our politicians would be a good thing. And I'm not just talking about booze. I'm talking about something to give them a bit of life and spark. Don't you think? Anyway, uh, so anyway, it's a, it's an interesting um, scenario. What was the outcome and of the 140 urine tests? Well, it's detectable in, in the majority of them. The, the, the majority think the, of them? Well, the, the tests are coming in the next couple of weeks, but they expect it will be detectable because it's detectable in a lot of people. So... And basically, the, the sort of parliamentary decision that this will lead to will be non-binding because each country has to make its own sort of decision, then the EU has, uh, takes a position on that later. And so, for example, there's already a split there because France and Italy, for example, want to halt the authorization of the use of this, whereas the UK says, no, 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 keep using it, it's awesome. Now... If you do halt it, it does have a pretty major effect on, you know, the way we do farming and so forth. So there's a lot of thinking to go on, but I just think, you know, these, um, as they're called, piss tests, um, for politi- <laughs> politicians, um, very good, very good. Now then, Emily. Yes. The plight of the orangutan in this world is ongoing and getting worse by the day. And you good people at the Zoos Victoria are continuing to make people aware of this. What, what's happening at the moment? So
2: this year's a pretty critical year for our palm oil campaign, Don't Palm Us Off. Um, as Dr Shane would know, we've been campaigning on this issue of unsustainable palm oil for ooh, around seven years, I mm, think now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we've made some really great gains in getting companies on board with uh, more sustainable forms of palm oil. But this year's pretty critical because there's 10 ministers um, from state and territories and New Zealand who are deciding on whether to... Um, Vote in favor of clear labeling of palm oil on mm. food products, and for us, this could be amazing because we 've seen particularly in the eu it 's funny you mentioned that um, the uptake of sustainable palm oil is huge when labeling comes into effect it 's really helpful mm. Mm.
1: and i mean what 's the re- i always think what 's the reason to not do this i mean i don 't quite understand why you would want to besides you know I don't know, briefcases of cash being left behind buildings for people or something. Why would you not do this?
2: Yeah, the main reason we get is um, is the cost of it is one part of it, um, which I agree is is just going to be so negligible mm, yeah, for a big industry when we talk about <laughs> big companies. Um, and it's not like we're asking for a huge big um, label on the front of the products. We're just asking for a little bit more information in the ingredients list. Um, but the other major one is these ministers, their remits health, and so they've been really focused on, well, you know, give us some health reasons for why this needs to be labelled because if we start opening the uh, the can of worms on environmental uh, mm. justifications, who knows where it could go? Oh,
1: they might actually. That would be terrible. Imagine that if they actually put things on there related to the environment.
2: How People fascinating! Might actually I know. know. <laughs> but,
3: but two things here: one on health, it's not so hard to argue the amount of saturated fat in palm oil yeah. compared to other species. <laughs> <other Indeed. sandwiches. laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's uh, pretty bad. Yeah. Um,
1: and and beyond like, just knowing what you're eating, yeah, mm. like surely you should be able to make choices based on information ideally yeah yeah. yeah. exactly um, what
2: we're about yeah transparent labeling mm. gives you much more choice
3: and mm. the other thing is you mentioned it's already happened in europe and given that a lot of the palm oil consumer uh, the palm, companies that use palm oil that make our everyday products mm. are normally a great deal of them are already international companies which means they would have already done the labeling in Europe.
0: Exactly yeah. right. They, Dr. A. It,
3: it, which is interesting because most of those companies are now pushing towards globalization in their R&D, their manufacturing bases and their packaging. In fact they probably have to pay extra at this point in some cases mm. to even not have the labels in Australia.
1: Yeah, it's not a big deal. It well, isn't a big deal. Let's hope, <laughs> let's hope the pressure goes on. So, so what do people see when they come to the zoo at the moment?
2: We've got some petitions going around Melbourne Zoo in particular, but we've also got them online, so if mm. you don't get to Melbourne Zoo in the next few weeks you can go to zoo.org.au forward slash palm and add your name. We've had over 34,000 in only wow. a few weeks which is fabulous. Mm. Um, and The ministers are meeting at the end of July and then again in November, so we really want to make sure it's on their radar by that time.
1: Mm. Look, I think it's... Uh, you, you, people often forget the the role that zoos victoria plays now it's very different to the traditional role of a a zoo uh you know the the sort of uh wildlife protection, other, et cetera, et cetera, um, things that you guys do now is actually really important, and I think um, people should get behind that and do as much as... I haven't been to the zoo for a while. I know you guys have got some ex- new exhibits of, well, the cat area. I haven't y- seen yes. that. Is it, is it good? It
2: is, it's fantastic. The lions yeah. have got a fabulous exhibit now. Yeah. Yeah. Because
1: yeah. it was kind of... They didn't interact much before, did they?
2: Not as much, but there's some huge big um, window displays now and you can come up, and if, especially if you've got small children. Yeah, very yeah. interested in
1: those. So you, do, you, do you have to <laughs> yeah. put, like, peanut butter on them or anything? No no no. no,
2: no, no! You just put them up, just right, put up right up front. Right yeah, because they look bite-sized.
1: That's right. Yes. Yeah, very alluring. Stuff. <laughs> Emily, thanks so much for coming and talking to us, and I hope the palm campaign con- continues to go well because it is something that we would like to see a big change on. And and you know, giving consumers information so that they can at least make a conscious choice is never a bad thing, as far as I can tell. So, good luck with it. Um, we'll keep promoting it for you here, of course, as we have done for I think it is about seven yeah. years. <laughs> um And uh, yeah. Have fun down at Zoo's Victoria. It's a great place.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: You're listening to Einstein and Go, Go on 3 Triple R. We're going to take a short break now for uh, some music, and we'll be back in a moment with our first guest for today. 3 Triple You're listening to Einstein and Go on 3 blah. I'm Dr Shane. In the studio we have Bernard Wood, who is a Professor of Human Origins and Director of the Centre for Advanced Study of Human Paleobiology at George Washington University in the United States. Bernard, welcome to our studio. Thank you very much. Now, you're here uh, at the moment uh, travelling around Australia, visiting the University of Melbourne on a Magunya Fellowship. What, what is in, involved in that? What, what do you do? While
0: the, uh, the job description is that I have to give a public lecture, which is next Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um and if you don't have a ticket you should you should you should get one now um and then I I I and I interact with the, the, the faculty mm-hmm. in the university yep. and and that's what I've been doing. Hmm. Now let's talk about
1: your field because it's one that's it's intensely fascinating. We often, you know, we try and get guests on in this area, um, but paleobiology, just give us a bit of a rundown of what exactly that is. This is, a, this is the study of the, the sort of, uh, the, the way species have evolved over a protracted
0: period? Yes, essentially, I mean you know, if you're a if you 're a biologist and you 're interested in living animals mm. um, we we do just the same, except that our animals aren 't living right and so there is a lot less evidence about them and um, most of the evidence comes from uh, the, the fossil evidence, and most of that the vast majority of that is of the bones and teeth mm. Mm. and um, the vast majority of that is Fragmentary. So, you know, the first thing you have to do is to try and work out how many organisms are being sampled by the fossils that you have. Yeah. And that's a bit like... I did most of my work in East Africa where we didn't know how many sorts of hominins there were. Mm. So it's a bit like doing a, you know, a jigsaw puzzle. It's just you don't know how many jigsaws there are. Right. Uh, and you don't know whether... Ninety percent of the pieces on the table come from one jigsaw, or, or ten, or, you know, <laughs> you know or six or seven or yeah. ten jigsaws, and so that's, um, you know, that's that's a challenge. But once you've worked out how many sorts of animals do you think you have, then you just want to know what a contemporary, bi- you know, what a biologist that's interested in contemporary animals wants to know. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to know how big they are what they ate, how they moved around and so on. Now, you
1: edit the Wiley-Blackwell Encyclopedia of Human Evolution I mean, when, you, when you're when you doing that how much of the picture do you think we have at the moment? Because it seems as though over the last 20 years there's been some pretty astounding discoveries
0: They have um, I like to irritate my colleagues um, by saying that I think probably the most interesting discovery about human evolution in the last few decades has Nothing to do with fossils, it's the fact that we now know as much as we know anything in biology that modern humans are more closely related to, uh, to common chimpanzees and bonobos hmm. than they are to gorillas or to orangutans. Now, that may be distressing to some of your listeners. My guess is that it's probably downright confusing for the chimpanzees and bonobos because they're in the <laughs> same zoo as the gorillas <laughs> and the orangutan. <laughs> and the people that they're more closely related to are wandering Watching. around eating ice cream. So <laughs> so, um, so that, I think, and that's really helped us work out where we are in the tree of life, mm. and which means that um, when we look at the fossil evidence that... It, it sort of helps us locate the fossil evidence mm-hmm. um, it's not a you know it's not an easy task but but you know if it was easy it wouldn't be fun
3: yeah uh so you uh you'd mentioned we we've learned quite a lot, but I was just curious in the last twenty twenty years there's been so many advances in technology have they actually have they have they provided new insight in this area or just confirmed what was already thought
0: no i think cases? they have they have provided new insight because, it, because if you're going to make any progress in trying to in trying to reduce our ignorance about human evolutionary history, you either have to find new evidence or you have to squeeze more information out of the evidence that you have already. Mm. So, for example, um, there are various modalities which are used to image. Uh, to image patients in hospital now these can be adapted to uh, to look at fossils so now you can look inside bones that uh, you can do that in a way that you could not do before because the curators of museums were not very keen on you know uh, Don't you up. taking <laughs> a fossil and putting it in a bacon slicer yeah, yeah. and slicing it up yeah. but now you can look for example at the um, uh, the uh, the canals in the inner ear the, uh, the mm-hmm. bony canals in the inner ear and get some sense about locomotion mm. uh, you can look at the microstructure of the teeth and you can get some sense about whether whether growth and development was rapid as it is in the apes or whether it was much more, more protracted as it is in modern humans. Mm.
1: I always had this image years ago and as you say the technology has changed this somewhat but you know how much more of this stuff can we dig up how much more can we find but how much of paleobiology these days is is back in the museum vaults going through old samples and just saying well look you know we we, we had a look at this by eye but now we have a you know an mri machine we're going to look at some of the soft tissues that are still perhaps from it you know there's there seems to just
0: be a whole world of samples that haven't been examined the, in the, that way. the, the There needs to be a balance between collecting new evidence and finding more fossils Mm. and then, and then increasing, um, the, the analytical power of looking at those new fossils. So in the old days, it was really, you know, it was largely an Indiana Jones sort of activity of, you know, you went out and found fossils and you described them. Now I think there is a more productive balance between finding new fossils and and extracting more evidence about mm. those fossils plus the fossils that we already have. But, you know, you must realize that if you look at all the fossil sites in East Africa and all the fossil sites in Southern Africa, and we know, you know, it's probably... Um, um, Charles Darwin said that modern humans are more closely related to the African apes. Therefore, if you want to find the fossil evidence for modern humans, you should go to Africa. Right. I'm sure he was right. Uh, but but the um, uh, the land surface of, you know it's a big place and those fossils only cover about 3% of the land surface right. of africa yeah. so if you think that uh, that god in her infinite Wisdom made sure that everything that that is to be found out about human evolution was conveniently um, <laughs> you know, was conveniently located in those places then then you're you know you're a more trusting and optimistic person than I am yeah now
1: as as we know the the climate around the world is shifting and this is causing a lot of areas to be exposed in a sense that weren 't previously mm-hmm. exposed and I know there is this rush at the moment on for a whole range of things where we're having changes in ice melts and so forth and things are being exposed. How is that changing the field? Because it seems to me as though, you know, there's a whole range of possibilities there that we didn't
0: have before. That's an interesting question, which which I must honestly say I haven't really thought about. I don't think fossil sites are being exposed by, um, by global by global warming but i may be wrong Mm. um the 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 what we do know is because one of the things we do is work with colleagues who reconstruct paleo environment and paleo climate we do know that um that of course the climate has changed in the past yeah it's just that it's Never changed as rapidly as it is now. So you see fluctuations in climate and of course it's, it's, it's highly likely that those fluctuations in climate, in climate probably influenced evolution. Not just of our ancestors and close relatives but of, but of everything else. What we have to do is try and work out what that link was and it probably, probably is mediated by things like diet and it's probably mediated by the availability of trees and branches. So in other words, if you're adapted to move around in trees and there are no longer any trees, then you obviously have to you know, you have to find another way of doing yeah, it. Yeah.
3: Um you mentioned climate in in, in, in paleo um Ecology, I'll make yeah. up a term there. Uh it, it just made me wonder and it's something that um the, the methods that using to study homonyms are also applied to other animals in the fossil record. Yeah. And are you able to then use information about that you learn about animals where maybe there's more fossils, to then look at their diet to derive things about their environment and then cross compare to to homonyms at those particular times or
0: you guys are smart. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's that's that's.
1: <laughs> we'll take
3: that.
0: That's why. <laughs> that's um, that's one of the things that we're particularly interested in at the moment. the the uh, The problem is that is that you can you can look and you can see, you know, there are changes in hominins. It's very easy to think that uh, to interpret those changes as being special. Mm. But what you need to do is to look at all the other animals that were living at the same time and find out whether they were changing, and that gives you a sense in which you know were the hominins just going with the flow, or were they in a sense adapting against the flow? So there are examples where um, where there is isotopic evidence of a change in diet, which sort of cuts against the general grain of what's happening in other large mammals like um, like antelopes and and pigs and elephants
1: and so on hmm. but look it's fascinating stuff and you, you know for some of us here in the studio we've often had a a love for this kind of material and, and kept going um for, for quite a while uh, i assume um, people can can look uh, if they uh, if they search your name we'll try and put a link up on our facebook site uh the lecture is on thursday night at the yes. university of melbourne yes um to learn a lot more about this stuff thanks so much for coming in and talking to us uh today and i hope you enjoy the rest of your stay in
0: australia Thank you very much. I've been having a wonderful time. You have a great country, guys. Excellent. Thank you.
1: Bernard Wood is Professor of Human Origins and Director of the Centre for Advanced Study of Human Paleobiology at George Washington University, and he's currently visiting the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in just a moment actually talking about not-that-dissimilar things to this. You are listening to Community Radio. It's Einstein and GoGo on 3RRR. We have in the studio now Travis Park. He's from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Travis, Welcome. Thanks very much. How are you doing? We're great. Look, you, you just heard the interview with Bernard Wood, of course, talking about paleobiology. So this is an area that you're well accustomed with.
4: Absolutely. Yes. He was sitting on the coach
1: beside me and didn't (laughs) realize who he was. So I feel a bit bad (laughs) though. Anyway, you know, as long as you you exchanged a little bit of a sweat or something, you know, you've met the man. But, um, you, you work on, on, well, two, Pretty interesting areas. One is penguins and what they were like in, in the past, and the other is whales. Let's start off with the penguins because I think some people Dr. Ray was reminiscing his time down at Phillip Island with these displays of these giant, you know, human sized almost penguins. I mean, what what's happened with the penguin penguin population over the years? How have they evolved around Australia?
4: Um well certainly Australian fossil penguins have been well they 've been in Australia for quite a long time. We have fossils going back thirty five million years or more, um, but the actual fossils themselves in Australia are quite uh, scrappy, quite fragmented, so whilst we know there is a, a long time where they 've been here. We're quite limited in what we can actually say about mm. them compared to other places like New Zealand or right. countries in South America that have, you know, complete skeletons preserved. We don't have that at all.
1: So. Is is there a reason for that that we know of?
4: Um, I think it's just available outcrop. Um, right. We're quite limited here in Australia. We've only got really what's really pretty much on the coast or used to be the coastline. Um, whereas other places are much more geologically active, mm. and you get a lot more fossils because of right. that. Right, right. And and what sort of things were you looking at with regards to the penguin fossils? Uh. Basically, our study was trying to put Australian fossil penguins in a, a global context. Um, they've been sort of traditionally the sort of forgotten sort of aspect of fossil right. penguin evolution. Um, and I guess partially the reason is because they are so fragmentary. But over the past few years, we've got some better material and we thought now was the time to actually try and put them in a global context. So we placed our Australian fossils into uh, basically a a big family tree of all fossil penguins and tried to figure out if they'd come here once millions of years ago and evolved into all the different species we see or whether it's been a case of lots of different uh independent dispersal events to australia hmm. and which one was it it was the latter oh really so, yeah, yeah. it's been multiple times over the past uh 35 million
1: years or more that uh, penguins have actually invaded and colonized australian waters wow yeah so uh, in terms of the the range of types of penguins that you would see is that is that how you determine that is it as opposed to one nice linear series of evolution do you find there's a whole lot of offshoots and different things or how do you work that out
4: yeah we just basically uh compare the morphology of the the, the material we do have um both within Australia and then to other mm. uh, penguins across the world. And, yeah, we find that it, um, it's been lots of different times that penguins have come here and they've been here for a while and then went extinct. And then today we have the, the world's smallest species of penguin. Yeah, there's totally the little single gross. living species of penguin here in Australia today, yeah. the, the Philip Island specialists. Um, nobody...
3: Sees penguins as long-distance travelers. So how how does how does colonization work? Are they coming over on landers? It's a very slow thing, and they're slowly moving and translating, probably following a food source. I guess
4: um, they can get around in the water. They can travel quite large distances. Okay. Even um, some of the bigger penguins, like king penguins, emperor penguins, can travel hundreds of kilometers, even just on a single foraging oh, wow. trip. So they can definitely get around. So all it takes is for you know one or two to get lost, and and then you know uh, you've got. There's been a few rare occurrences of um, species from South America washing up on Australian shores, so they've got you know completely lost. And mm. I mean, that's a very rare thing. But I mean, you only over millions of years, yeah, yeah, that only needs
1: to happen a few times. And yeah, that's a couple why, of penguins caught in the hurricane, and that's yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, now, you're talking sort of 35 million years and these sorts of long time time periods. W- were penguins always flightless? Uh, even the, the earliest fossil penguins we have are about 60 million years old, yep.
4: and they're from New Zealand, and they are what we we think they're flightless already, even yeah. by that stage. So we haven't found that sort of uh, sort of missing link, a, yeah, a flying yeah. a, a flying penguin. Um, but the earliest fossils we do have are unmistakably. A penguin and that is flightless and yeah. swimming around. That's a bit sad.
1: Anyway. <laughs> uh, now, now, you uh, have more sort of recently been working on a couple of different types of whales and considering mm-hmm. how their their auditory differences um, play out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, tell us about that, because one of the things we know is that, you know, modern-day whales have this incredible ability to communicate over long distances. Yeah. What what are you looking for there in terms of these, these older whales?
4: Um, pretty much mm-hmm. uh, you've got two modern groups of whale. You've got the baleen whale things like the blue whale, the mm-hmm. humpback whale, and then you have your tooth whales, so things yep. like dolphins, killer whales, sperm whales, stuff like that. And uh, they are very different in what sort of frequencies, what sounds they can hear, what sounds they produce. So baleen whales have really low frequency hearing, okay. whereas yep. on the other hand, things like dolphins have very high frequency hearing, yeah. and of course they use that uh, in echolocation, so basically sonar. Um What I've been looking at is trying to look at the fossil representatives of both those groups to actually figure out what was going on just as they were splitting from each other and trying to figure out sort of when and where these key sort of morphological changes occurred.
1: Mm. And, and I, what I don't quite understand there in the evolutionary sense is the, the low-frequency stuff travels well. Mm-hmm. The high-frequency stuff is absorbed. So you yep. know, for anyone out there who's wondering why when you go past a car with loud music you hear the oomph, because the low frequencies make exactly. it through yep. and the high frequencies are highly attenuated and you don't hear them. Why the species like dolphins and so forth have that high-frequency scenario given its poor ability to travel longer distances,
4: or is um, it not needed? I think, yeah, what they're using it for it's not so much long-distance communication, it's more short-range trying to sort of visualise their local environment, mm, okay. trying yep. to visualise prey and stuff like that, so um, if you are looking to, you know, communicate over tens or hundreds of kilometres as baleen whales do then you're more likely to use low-frequency sounds, mm, and that mm. seems to be the case mm.
3: Did uh, You said you were looking at when whales uh, split up into the toothed and, and baleen mm-hmm. as... Did, I, this is just going back to, I think, an exhibit I saw at Science Works or at a museum about, you know, even hypotheses of how whales evolved. They were really big creatures living in shallow water. Eventually, it became easier not to go on land to feed. Did they actually split off from the same origin points? Is it the same type of land mammal that split into both types of whales? Or was it was it different land mammals that evolved into different whales?
4: Um- But all Both the the modern groups of whales share a common ancestor. Um, Nearly every single study supports that these days. So, um, yes. Hmm. And that ancestor would have already been fully aquatic, but if you go back further along, sort of back along the family tree, you will find something that was actually running around on land Hmm. and was probably living beside a river and then spent gradually more
3: and more time in the water. So so then the evolution of baling-based whales must be fascinating because that's such a big physiological change to go from it probably I assume it they originally had teeth mm-hmm, yep. to see that evolve into baleen that's just amazing
4: yeah and it's one of the sort of hot topics insert in whale evolution at the moment you know we're still trying to get a handle on exactly how that happened because not only do you see the appearance of baleen it's the complete change in feeding ecology from you know having to chew things or whatever or use suction and then they're you know all of a sudden they're filtering and uh then you see this concordant change in body size as well start getting a lot bigger so i mean there's a mm. whole host of um,
1: physiological changes happening at that mm. same time as well. Mm. But now, Travis, just before we let you go, sorry, Doctor Sorry, he um, gets excited. He's, excited excited. Well. he's <laughs> a chemical engineer. He gets excited with this stuff. Uh, we, we um, one of the things that we were talking to Bernard about just before was, you know, if you want to look at humans and their, their evolution, you know, go mm-hmm. to Africa. Where do you go to find the fossils for these these whales? I mean, is, this, is some of these still on land because of changes in sea level, or are you snorkeling?
4: They are, no, they're mostly on land. Mm. Um, again, it depends what group you're after. Um, we're actually quite lucky here in Victoria. We have some of the best preserved early, uh, toothed baleen wheel fossils. So those really early, uh, baleen wheels you were mentioning yeah. just before, we have some of the best ones in the world here. Oh, we're found wow. down on the coast in Torquay. Mm. And we're hopefully, we'll keep finding them, hopefully. Yeah. hopefully. And of
1: course, I mean, they're best found if you're on the surfboard. I mean, you know, you, yep. you got to look from the sea, you know, coming absolutely. In, coming into Bell's <laughs> Beach. Yep, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Travis, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's a really fascinating area, and I think um, the more you know, we still the fact that we still don't know the answers to some of these questions is really quite interesting. So, good luck with the continued work, and um, yeah, good to chat. Thank you very much for having me. Travis Park is from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment with our final guest for today from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Three. Jimmy. back. You're listening to Einstein and Go on 3 R. If you're wondering what tracks we played today, the first one was by the Cat Empire called Bulls. The second one was Bob Evans with Fact, and that one was Miss Elm with Bittersweet. In the studio now we have Dr. Julia Machingo from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Julia, welcome to Triple R.
5: Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here.
1: Look, it's great to have you here because you've won uh, quite a prestigious award recently, which is the reason we decided to have you in. Well, actually, we would have got you in for your research anyway at some stage, but um, you've won the Victorian Young Achievers University of Melbourne Science and Technology Award tell us a bit about that what's it for and what does it mean for you
5: um i guess it's recognizing um, young victorians contribute many things to our community and to our scientific community as well and so this award i guess is acknowledging my contribution not only through the scientific work that i've done but also my public engagement in Mm. the scientific community and the broader public Mm.
1: so there's an area that i've been a bit maybe forthright on radio a bit uh, over the last couple of years immunizations a bit here and there i I, haven't noticed you know uh, you know not in a major way but uh, (laughs) maybe every other week Um, (laughs) this is something obviously you've been heavily involved with and these things called vaccination cafes tell us what they are because it sounds fascinating that you you, you're obviously going you're an immunologist so you know this stuff you've obviously seen that there's you know, as I say, a retraction of progress um, in the world at the moment where people are pulling away from vaccinations. What are the vaccination cafes about?
5: So the vaccination cafes are actually an event that we hold annually as part of the International Day of Immunology, mm-hmm. which um, happened at the end of April. Yep. Um, and basically the thinking was that... A lot of the time, scientists seem to get a little bit isolated from the community as a whole, and so that part of this issue with um, people, I guess. Um not having the not not having yeah, not not, um, not not having the correct information, mm. not having access to the experts. Mm. So really, the idea with these is to give people access to the scientists, access to sort of people to have a discussion with if they're unsure if they have questions, um, and at the same time to provide the community with the chance to get an influenza vaccination in particular. Right. Yep. But this year as well, um, the initiative included whooping cough vaccinations yep. for pregnant mothers. Mm. Um, and so that was organized by the day of immunology committee um and was um done on the 29th of april in right. the melbourne town hall
1: and and when i mean when you're there i mean you must meet a variety of different types of parents and, and uh, people who aren't parents presumably it, it's it's one of those things where i suppose there's there's a group of parents who will vaccinate no matter what um they also use electricity I'll put it that way. Um, then there's a group of parents at the other end of the spectrum who think this is evil, um, it causes autism, et cetera, et cetera, which is the sort of, call it the non-science version of things. But then there must be a big group in the middle that you can have a pretty big impact on. Is that, is that how it plays out? So
5: really these cafes are actually designed to try and have a conversation with that group in the middle. Mm. It's sort of the people at the polarised ends are perhaps not so convinced by a discussion, but there's a lot of people in the middle who just don 't have access to i guess reputable information don 't have have a lot of questions and there 's a lot of noise coming from the anti vaccination mm. crowd and they just don 't have or have not previously had enough access to the information from the scientific crowd yeah. and sort of this is just one of many initiatives to try and help them have access to that information to yeah. sort of to overcome their, their doubts or fears mm. or uncertainties.
1: So it's interesting. I gave a plenary talk uh, for a group of postgraduates um, for their event this week, and part of the talk was on it was on communication, but the, part of the talk was on immunisation. They said, well, over the last 30 years, as a community, science hasn't really come out and continually said. Hey, how great is this immunization program we've been running now compared to what things were like a hundred years ago? And we don't, we don't tell that story. It's kind of like, you know, no one really talks about seatbelts anymore. It's sort of like you just assume you all use them. And you know, if an anti-seatbelt lobby came in, we, we'd sort of be, we'd be off guard, you know, we'd be like, what happened, you know? And I think that's partly what's gone on here is that we haven't continued to tell the great story of, you know, the fact that people aren't walking around with polio anymore. We don't do that. Yeah. Is, it, is that how you, you see it
5: I, I think historically one, one of the big issues is that often we don 't see these diseases anymore. Mm. vaccination has been so successful as one of the most successful medical in, uh, interventions ever yeah um, so that this is where the uh, ability to have these uncertainties has sort of arisen and I think these days now that there has been this anti vaccination um, sort of group that have um, arisen, we're now getting onto to this we need to have this consistent dialogue we need to keep talking about how important it is but in a way it's almost turned it into a debate again when Mm. it really shouldn't be
1: yeah yeah. well it's not a debate about one version of science and another version of science it's a debate about science and misinformation based on fabricated data um, essentially so a lie that has propagated for so long it's incredible how long this one lie has propagated against the scientific data as you say you walk down the street and you don't see these diseases our life expectancy is incredibly long compared to what it was and we have all these benefits but we don't appreciate it what what sort of i'm curious about the argument you give to a a sort of fence-sitting parent how do you go about convincing them that they should do this i mean because there's always that that fear in the back of their head no parent wants to put their child in any any sort of risky situation at all and if there's any fear at all you have to kind of work with that
5: overcome it i think for me in particular, the most important thing is to actually put these parents onto reputable sources where they can find information, balanced information, where they can make a decision. So there's an excellent resource that the Australian Academy of Science put out. Um, uh, it's a booklet. I forget what it's exactly called. I think it's the Science of Immunisation mm. or Vaccination. And it's just an excellent resource which gives factual information. It does discuss sort of the large benefits as well as the the minor sort of potential risks involved. Mm. And for me very much the discussions about not only I guess restating the massive scientific benefits but giving people places to go to where they can find um, scientifically
1: rigorous yeah. information yeah and it's hard for the average consumer to absorb some of the information if it's not provided in an appropriate yeah. appropriate way which is why it's so easy for the anti-vaccination lobby to yeah. to, to to beat us at their own game on this one so now let's talk a little bit about your research before i think we've you know we've done vaccinations mm-hmm. go out and get them folks it's um yeah. well if you don't want to get them for yourself get them for the people who are immune compromised and can't get them yeah. i think you've if there's yeah. just that, it's a good reason.
5: of so Even the annual flu shot, it's mostly helping to protect the elderly in our community mm. who are more susceptible to these flu, um, flu viruses yeah. who may be hospitalised or even killed yeah. by these. Yeah. So not it's about you, important. it's
1: about everyone else, part of being a, a community.
5: Oh, it can be self-serving as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> because yeah. I, I don't want to end up with the flu. No,
1: exactly. You know, it's, <laughs> that's not a good thing. Now, let's talk a bit about your research because you, you're an immunologist. You work on yes. the immune system and, and how that plays out um what what are you looking into at the moment because i know we were talking just before you came on air about the immune cells and how they interact and talk with the rest of the body and what signals they take on so what are we trying to figure out there
5: so i guess the way the immune response works is that in your body you have a lot of immune cells each of and sort of rare immune cells can recognize different infections so some can recognize a flu some can recognize a cold and what happens when you get the flu is those cells that specifically recognize it get activated and they divide many times to make this clonal army that can then attack the flu response but the thing is the immune response is i guess a balance so you don't want these cells to activate um aberrantly and cause disease or cause more harm than good but equally you of course want them to respond to protect Mm. you against flu so my research is really trying to understand how these cells put together multiple different signals during an infection to make a decision yes i'm the correct cell to respond yes i should i should respond and make this bigger response and that's enough of a response so that I can kill off this infection but not cause harm to the host.
1: And presumably this is a very complex scenario because we know that there are times where, for whatever reason, we don't manage to win. You know, our immune system doesn't win so you'll have a cold one year and you'll end up having to get antibiotics because of a secondary bacterial infection the next year you'll have a cold and you'll be fine uh, i mean that, how do we do we know why that difference occurs why does the immune system just get it wrong or
5: um well, i guess sort of cold viruses themselves are actually different viruses in, each time we get yep, them yep. so in some cases it's just a matter of um you know one one was more um more uh, serious than the other Mm. but equally it's i guess exposure to a pathogen in the case of the bacteria it's um so i guess the immune response has a broad amount of protection against a variety of different things it doesn't mean it could protect us from everything Mm. but Mm. equally it it protects us from a large amount and critically ensures that we at least live through it to see yeah. another day
3: yeah which is a good thing <laughs> um when i thought about the immune response when i was i was reading about about your work I, it never it, i feel very much like an engineer all of a sudden it never dawned on me that your immune cells the the, the response rate the amount of cells it would have to divide and create i never realized the scale of that and yeah. could you chat about how does it what is an appropriate scale i guess as a percentage of our immune system or number of cells when you're fighting an infection how many cells do you say you have to divide and make a lot is that
5: um, so you 're typically oh i can 't think of the numbers off the top of my head, but we 're talking would we start with maybe fifty cells that are responding, and they need to make orders ten to the like millions billions wow. um, of cells in order to make a response and it 's not just one sort of cell there are multiple different sorts of immune cells that are all undergoing this process of proliferation this clonal expansion to form this army of cells it's a lot of
1: work for the body when yeah, it's to, yeah. Whenever it's I get sick, I eat straight away. It's one of the things yeah. I do. I start eating as much as I can because I figure my body's going to need every bit of help it can yeah. get, <laughs> which often you don't feel like doing when you're sick. Yeah. So, yeah. Juliet, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today, and congratulations again on the Victorian Young Achiever Award. I think it's really great. I know you're heading off uh, to the UK in, yes, in, uh, in three weeks, three weeks uh, for a postdoc. Good luck with that. Make sure you come back you know steal their secrets come back we like yeah. our people to come <laughs> back to australia um but good luck with your work and um keep up the push for immunization i think it's really important to people like yeah. yourself for getting out there and it's great that these awards are there to recognize that so so thanks okay. for chatting with us yeah, thank you very much for having me dr julia machinko from the walter and eliza hall institute well ray we're pretty much out of time we're going to have to hand over to the team from eat it in a few minutes been a great morning though a lot of guests, yeah. a lot of good okay. guests. And, I, you know, it was one of those things where just by chance we ended up having a fairly uh, pa- paleobiology uh, oh, I- sort of series of guests today, which was great because they're, they're rare, rare as fossils.
3: Yes. You can get them in very oh, real. Yeah. <laughs> Have to dust them off from the shelf.
1: Yeah, no, they're good. Uh, thanks so much for listening in today. We will have another great group of guests coming up for you next week. And, um, I think we will, me and Dr. Ray will be here again. A few of our team members are away. As you know, Dr. Lauren's, uh, soon to have a baby and, uh, Dr. Ailey's overseas. And anyway, we'll, we'll have a, a bigger crew back in a couple of weeks time. But until then, uh, we're going to leave you with the team from EDIT. Remember that science is everywhere, and have a fabulous Sunday. This has been a podcast from
0: 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.